Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics, and we ask that you use your own discretion when listening and that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we're joined by Dr. Charlotte Markey to discuss body image in young people. Charlotte is a professor of psychology and health sciences at Rutgers University in Camden, New Jersey. She's been studying body image and eating behaviors for almost 25 years and is the author of a book, really cool book that we're going to chat about today, called The Body Image Book for Girls, Love Yourself and Grow Up Fearless. That's such a fun title. Welcome, Charlotte. We're so happy that you can join us today. It's really a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Well, let's let's dive in. You know, body image is no small topic to the eating disorder community. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about it. We know that eating disorders are about far more than body image concerns, uh, of course, but for many people, those concerns are an important part of their illness and recovery experience. So before we dive too far into that, can you just start us off with a kind of basic definition, your working definition of body image? Uh, what is it? Who has it? And why does it matter? Well, we definitely all have it, um, whether or not we have it in a very positive way or not, of course, varies, I think, considerably. Um, but, you know, sort of the standard definition is how we think or feel about our bodies. And I have to say that even though I've been studying body image for a really long time as a research scientist, it was really, I think, in working on this book for girls that I started to almost reformulate my own definition of body image because the more I talked with girls and the more I dug into the literature, the more I came to believe that body image kind of touches on every other area of our life. And so I know that sounds a little dramatic, but it's why in part this book kept growing and growing. It ended up being twice as long as I said it was going to be because, you know, I, I started with body image. And then I was like, well, we really need to talk about nutrition and food and eating disorders. And we really need to talk about mental health kind of in general. And we need to talk about self-care and physical activity. And, and so it, it starts to, I think, really just spread into almost all of the crevices of our lives. And that, of course, can be a great thing. But for people who are having a difficult time with their body image, it can also really sort of cast a shadow on all of those areas of their lives. Absolutely. And, and all of those, all those various crevices are so influenced by messages from society and media and our distortion of those as we, as the society gives those messages and as we hear them. And so it is, that's a, it's a tall order to, to try to navigate all of those crevices. I can see why it had to be twice as long to, to give that some space, but I, uh, I think that it is Im important to speak to that experience. I, I've often sort of shifted body image from just one, you know, sort of body image and thought about it uh, in the clinical work that I do and the, the teaching I do around body. It's also sort of body experience, right? Like how we are in our bodies, which you, I think you're speaking to. So I, I love your more holistic perspective of it's not just this thing. It's, a, it's quite a broad perspective. So we, we know that you know, body image concerns impact people of all ages, all genders. We know we don't have probably enough research to, to really cover all ages and all genders, but we know that your, your latest book is written for girls and about body image in girls. 
and, and your forthcoming one is written about body image of boys. So let's start um, talking about the, the girls, the young girls first. Um, what was your motivation behind uh, writing a body image handbook for younger girls? Yeah, I think there were, you know, the stars aligned. There were so many things that sort of brought me to this place. And some of it, I'm sure, was just my own experiences growing up as a girl who was a dancer and had body image concerns because of the time I spent in a world that was just so heavily focused on bodies. And then doing research in this area. And increasingly across my career, I've, I've made a point of trying to bring my research to more public spaces because I feel like it's just not you know, useful if we just keep as researchers talking to each other, right? We have to get it out to the public for it to become actually useful. And the more I did that, the more I realized that there were things that sort of the scientific community knows that the public doesn't really know. There's just so much misinformation about eating and diet and body image. I think that getting the science to the public is really important. And um, in terms of writing a book specifically about body image, though, I think having, you know, my own daughter who was approaching the teenage years, now she's a full-blown teenager, but when I started really kind of thinking about this, I think a lot of it really was these like internal conversations I was having, like, okay, we've got to make sure to tell her that. And I want to say that too. And, and I'm the sort of person who sometimes I think does better when I write it out because I just need that process of sort of thinking through things in an organized way, which writing then affords you. So it's like I almost started thinking of it as like this really long letter I had to give to my own daughter someday. And then I was like, well, I don't want it just for my daughter. I want her friends to have it. And I want like kind of the whole world to have it because if it's just her, then, you know, body image is so socioculturally influenced and that's not enough. So how do you actually sort of change, you know, the world for everyone we care about? I love how you, how you, melded your perspective as a mom on that, that concept of here, what I want to, I want to say this and I want to say that, I want to say that, I want to say that. That's just a, a beautiful concept. I'm, I'm a mom and I have thought that similarly, like, oh, I can't forget that one. Oh, that's a good lesson. I got to write that one down. So I love that you wrote them down. That's fantastic. And then not only that, but then you brought in your perspective as a, as a researcher and looking at the science and what do the data say and and how does that mix and then or maybe surrounding it with and what kind of world do we live in and how does that work and how does it influence it? So I, I love the, the multifaceted faceted perspective you bring to it. That's really neat. Let's talk a little bit about, about girls first and then I have a question about other genders. So, so what makes girls particularly, as a, as a unique group, what makes girls particularly susceptible to negative body image during adolescence, early adulthood, maybe even younger? you know, very early adolescence. Yeah, I mean, there's so much going on with girls during the early adolescent and adolescent years that impacts their body image. And some of it is puberty, of course. So their bodies are changing. Some of it's engaging more with their peer groups and their social worlds outside of their families. And a lot of those influences, especially media influences, are not particularly positive. So as girls are changing themselves and caring more about sort of these different social influences, they're also becoming more exposed to messages from these social influences that basically keep telling them, you're not really okay the way you are. 
you really got to do something to your face or your hair or your clothes or your, right? And so, and I think those messages really are not benign. So as individuals, we like to think they are that like, oh, I'm impervious to that. But they're just so pervasive that none of us are immune to them. And so as girls reach, you know, the, the beginning of their teenage years or even really 9, 10, 11, they, I think just this sort of this, this whole set of factors culminates and, and places them really in a space of vulnerability. And so I really wanted to target the message to girls at this age, maybe before they really develop persistent concerns about their body. Because I'm sure you've seen this in, in clinical work, and I know it from research and just from talking to other women even, that it feels like once this becomes really ingrained in adulthood, these sorts of concerns and how you think about food, how you think about yourself, it's just really hard to shake, right? It, it needs, it requires like this whole sort of shift in thinking. And I'm, I guess, maybe a little naive and just really hopeful that we can keep girls from requiring that kind of shift later, that if we get to them so that it just feels really normal for them to like eat when they're hungry and stop when they're full and wear what clothes they like and, you know, be more media literate. Like there's this, you know, whole list of things that we have to be informative about, but, but I hope that it keeps girls from feeling that kind of just really down on themselves, I guess, is the easiest way to put it. Yeah. I, I have this this fantasy that if we could if we could get it broadly out there enough, then we could really combat all the messages that lead girls to feel bad in the first place. So like couldn't we create a better world where it would be more the default to feel good in your skin and more the default to eat when you're hungry and more the default to stop eating when you've had enough. Like that would be a lovely world to to live in, right? But I love that idea of how do we how do we do that in a in in a of protecting girls kind of way and equipping them with the information they need. And also how much will that change society? I, I, I'm with you. I hope it, it really sort of filters all over. And then we, we've really had much more of a broad influence, which would be great. So let's dive a little bit more into, into gender. Let's compare that with other genders. So how do body image concerns present differently in boys and young men or in other adolescents who identify as transgender or non-binary? What do we, what do we know about that? Yeah, so first, let me just say, I think in terms of both non-binary and transgender youth, we just don't know a lot, right? And, and that's in part because research is slow. It's just a long process. It takes years. And we've really experienced a lot of social and cultural movements surrounding, I think, people's views of LGBTQ. I always want to make sure I get all my initials. Youth. and you know, it really, it's, it's like now people forget, but I was trying to do research on gay and lesbian couples at, in 2010, and people were telling me like I couldn't get funding. So that was 10 years ago, right? So, so social change has moved quickly in ways that are amazing, I think, but the research hasn't totally caught up. So we don't know a lot, aside from the fact that it seems that non-binary and trans kids are struggling right? And they're struggling probably not just in terms of body image, but some mental health in general, because there's still a long way for us to go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so I wish I had more to say than to say we don't know a lot, but that's kind of a lengthy reason um, why I don't have more specifics to offer there. 
And in terms of boys, you know, we've been behind for a long time also. And I think that's really been changing in the last decade uh, or two. But I think part of the problem has been that a lot of boys' concerns do manifest differently. And so they've been missed. And um, one thing I find to be really interesting is in interviewing boys for this project, a lot of them, I, I have to have them sign like a consent. It's part of my job as a researcher to be like really formal. I just have them sign and their parents sign a consent form. And, um, and I ask them if I can acknowledge them in the book. And all that means is at the back of the book, there's a very long, long acknowledgement section, right? And, and I want to give them credit as contributors. And about, I would say almost half the boys have said no. I didn't have one girl say no. Not one. Um, but I think because these topics have traditionally been so feminized, boys are kind of afraid to associate themselves with it. And in talking with boys, I also found that you know, their vocabulary for talking about these issues is frankly really limited. And not, not all boys are men. I don't want to like totally stereotype. I have some wonderful interviews from some boys and young men who are I think, you know, just really thoughtful. So I've been really, really grateful for, for them. Um, but it took, I think, some courage for them to really reveal some of those thoughts and really get into it. And, and then when they do, it's not what we expect if you're used to talking to girls or women, right? So their concerns manifest as they're going to the gym a lot, like a lot, or they're using... Um, some kinds of supplements that are, you know, protein powders or things like this, or they're cutting out carbs, they're doing a lot of weightlifting. So it's almost like these really stereotypically masculine behaviors that are also associated with health. So even to parents and professionals, they often don't look like a problem because what's going on internally is like, I hate how I look, so I'm going to go to the gym. But when someone just sees that I'm going to the gym, they're like, oh, well, that's great. Like, you know, exercise, good for you. Yeah, it strikes me that so, so many of the behaviors that end up being concerning or that are concerning look like health behaviors, right? I'm going to the gym, I'm lifting weights, I'm eating fruits and vegetables, I'm watching this, that, and the other thing. That, that that's, I, I think, in part why this sort of the insidious nature of, of body image concerns and eating concerns. Because in some level, it's not hard to find broad societal support for the things you're doing, even though they're harmful to you. Yeah. And as you know, anything done sort of to the extreme is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, it takes up too much time. It takes up too much mental space. It robs you of the ability to do other things then. Right. Right. Yeah. I think it's, you know, as we think a little bit about, you know, we know eating disorders often manifest during adolescence and, and young adulthood of course, can occur later as well, but those are the two primary areas of onset. Uh, and so tools and strategies to help those age groups or even younger, right, so that we can prevent some of those, build a, a positive body image are particularly important. And, and one thing that you talk about in the book uh, that, I, that I really liked is this body functionality, like that concept that sort of helps take it out of what it looks like and more into what it does. Talk a little bit about that concept of body functionality and how you're imagining it and how you're speaking to it. Yeah, I love this concept of body functionality. And 
you know, I think in some ways it probably resonates more with adults because as we get older, we start to experience some losses of functionality. And, and young people feel so invincible often that they don't focus on functionality enough. And yet I really want us as providers, as a society to try to shift that focus towards functionality more, right? So what does your body do for you? And if you kind of think about it even second to second, it's like everything, right? I mean, we're breathing, we're talking, we're interacting with technology, we're, you know, we're forming relationships, we're doing all sorts of things. And our bodies enable that. They allow us to experience the world. And so many people grow up feeling like their body's the problem. Instead, I think it's just so much healthier to think about, no, your body actually allows this all to happen. And if it doesn't look exactly quote unquote perfect, like who really cares? Like, do you see all the things it's doing for you? And and I think interestingly, you know, there's nothing like a pandemic to make you appreciate health more. So in the midst of a, a pandemic, there's been a lot of discussion about people being concerned about being home and their routines changing and things like that. But I think it's also a good opportunity to remind people like, but if you're healthy right now, like that's really a lot. Yeah, I think that's very true. And the other concept that I, that I can hear in that appreciation of body functionality is really that gratitude and, and appreciation and recognition that, you know, we, we get so bombarded by these outward messages of, you know, what we look like and what we should look like and whoever is determining those things and then, you know, presenting us false narratives regarding that. But it, it really underscores that we don't have to sort of, quote unquote, love our body every second or love everything about it or, you know, have it be just right to be able to respect and care for it. And I would add, be grateful for it, right? Or appreciate the functionality of it. You might not like how it looks and there's more to that, right? And that's what I hear you speaking about that. How do we care for that and appreciate that? Even if it doesn't match some, some standard that's probably made up and nobody needs anyway. Right. Yeah. It's so in that book, the, the, in the discussion of sort of taking care of ourselves, we, we get to this topic of nutrition that you mentioned earlier. And we know that that's has all sorts of interesting aspects, right? Because you've uh, written about and spoken about the dangers of dieting and, and we do that again in this book and, you know, in the eating disorder world, of course, we think a lot about dieting and how that is such an important, uh, prominent risk factor in the development for eating disorders. And so how, how do we balance that? I think this is maybe a tricky question. How do we balance recommending certain things with food over other things with food? How do we really balance talking about food and nutrition with children in our lives. Yeah, I think it's incredibly complicated. And like most of parenting or caring for children, it's just very humbling. You know, I think that it is sort of a balancing act because we do want to present nutritious food to kids that we're caring for. And we want them to grow accustomed to eating nutritious food. And so that means exposing them to those foods repeatedly usually, right? Like people don't tend to like broccoli the first time they like, they, they try it. So you got to try it a number of times and yet you can't like force them to try it. You know, it's like, you have to just kind of have it there because we know from all the, you know, child development eating literature that like really forcing or rewarding food choices 
is problematic. So we don't want to do those things. And yet then we also want kids to sort of have the freedom to make choices, especially as they sort of age, as it's developmentally appropriate, um, where they can eat things that are not necessarily nutritious and not feel any guilt about it. So we don't want to create this sort of food hierarchy in our, in our homes where kids feel guilty about certain foods and it's a treat and it's an indulgence and it becomes this big thing. And so we really want to try to raise, you know, more intuitive eaters. And it's such a strange thing to admit, but it's almost like we want to not make food a big deal. But as parents, I feel like you have to actually think about it a lot to make food not a big deal because no one in our culture is working with us on this point. So, you know, I mean, I try to be like super casual about things with my own kids that I've spent, you know, like hours thinking through. I mean, not the exact wording because I'm too impulsive in how I talk to them, I think. But and, and there's a lot of biting your tongue, too, I think, as, as a parent, right? That we've all probably had moments, or if you're, you know, at a niece's birthday party or a sporting event for, you know, a godchild or anything, right? You might find yourself being ready to say, like, oh, my God, I can't believe so-and-so ate all of that. Or why are you having that for lunch or whatever? You really want a fourth piece of pizza? And none of this none of this buys us anything productive. So sometimes it's about not talking. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, I think that's a great, that's a great concept is the, is the sometimes it's just about not saying and letting be. And, and I think it's fascinating to sort of dig into that a little bit, right? Where does that come from? Like when I hear those comments as a, as a mom and as a professional, I, I somehow feel some undercurrent of, of fear or concern that I'm always curious about. Like, what are we afraid of if that kid has the fourth piece of pizza? Like, what are we afraid of if they eat that? And I, I think that's a, a, I think it's a big question. And it, and it, it's something we certainly don't spend enough time, I think, thinking about and talking about, right? How to navigate that because we have all these messages telling us what we maybe should be afraid of. But how, how do you, how do you think through that or how, what's your perspective on, on that? Like, what are we really afraid of and how does this shift in thinking about food or not saying something about food? How does that end up feeling a little threatening to people? Yeah, I think that's really interesting the way you phrased that. And yes, I would agree that, that fear is a part of it. And as a parent, are we, are we fearing that our child's will grow up and be heavy? Are we fearing that we don't have control over what they're doing? Are we fearing that they don't listen to us? You know, I mean, it, it's not, it's very rarely just about the food, right? And even when it has to do with weight and concerns about our, our child's weight or, or kids that we care for, their weight, is it really about that? Or is it I think as a parent, often like we, we kind of know how society works and we think, well, we don't want other people to mistreat our child. And we know that if they're kind of not conforming in certain ways, that there's the possibility of that. So, so I think there are fears and some of them have to do with food, but most of them don't. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I agree. 
we have a harder time talking about the things we are afraid of and it just feels easier to say do this don't do that <laughs> that doesn't really require as much depth but i think that i think that's true so we understand you you've talked about being mom you have children you have a girl you have a boy what tips can other parents take away you know what do you what do you say to people who say, oh, you do body image research in kids. What's that like? Or what do you say to your kids? I, I imagine that it, it you know, it, it, when we used to be able to have dinner parties with other people, that your profession um, brings some interesting comments that people make <laughs> about it. But I'm curious, what, what tips can parents take in order to support positive body image in their, in their children? Yeah, I really do believe that parents can make a difference and professionals and people who are thoughtful about these issues can make a difference or I wouldn't do this work. I do think it's challenging, but I think the first thing to do is to sort of evaluate our own behaviors as parents or just adults who interact with kids and really do our best to set a good example. So that means that we can't say things like, oh my God, I can't believe how tight these pants have gotten or, oh no, I'm not having dessert this week or whatever it is because we're just heightening, by heightening our own concerns and, and articulating those, we're, we're making it more likely that young people sort of tune in and think like, oh, I should be worried about that too. And that's not an adaptive way for them to think about body image and, and eating behaviors. And, and sometimes that means I think as adults, we have to kind of fake it right? Because we think to say those things and you have to kind of then moderate what you actually say out loud. And I think it's also really important to offer just support to kids and be really positive and be really careful not to make any kind of negative appearance comments. I think many adults can remember sometime. Um, I still have this memory of like driving in the car with my mom and her making a comment about like my pimples and you know, just she was trying to be really positive, I think, at the time, but it was just like really like, you know, cut to my heart. And and so even if as grown-ups we're trying to be supportive, we really have to be careful. And it really is all the better if we just don't talk with young people about appearance issues as much, because then we can start to change the conversation and and focus on things that are more important. Right. So instead of saying like, oh, your hair looks great today, you know, how was school today? Oh, I really like how you and your friend are working on that project together. Like it was really nice to hear you laughing while you're working on that. Or you really seem to be learning a lot this year. I mean, there's just so many other things we could talk about and they aren't always as physically available or obvious. But I think once we get in the habit of that, then it's not hard. Right? So we really want to make sure we're socializing our kids to appreciate that their appearance is a very small part of who they are. And we see all those other parts and the rest of the world will see all those other parts too. And they shouldn't be afraid to show people that they're funny, that they're caring, that they're smart, that they're quirky in some way. And it doesn't have to just be about how they look. And we've already talked about food, so I don't want to belabor that. But of course, there are, um, I think, also some important things to be thoughtful about in terms of how we talk about and socialize eating behaviors. Yeah. It struck me as you were talking that if, if we as adults did that and were able to say those things, you know, because of how our brains work, that would help us too, right? That if I am saying to a young person, you know, what did you learn? Or I'm so proud of how you did that. Or 
I'm focusing my comments on something other than appearance, then does that does that make my help my brain to not focus on comments to myself about appearance? And I, I love the sort of side effect it sounds like we could have of, of you know helping our kids would probably also help the adults to think about ourselves in a different way, which then of course has the lovely, hopefully potential feedback loop of what do we say out loud? So I love the idea of of somebody working really hard to do the best for their child and having it turn out to be beneficial for them. <laughs> That's, that sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, you know, it might feel kind of strange to say things like this to other adults, but there's really no reason why we couldn't try to practice that also, you know, so that we can, we can say things instead of greeting people with, wow, you're looking really great or, you know, whatever. Um, I love what you just did to your hair. I don't think we need to get rid of all of that because some of those are sort of polite, almost traditions in our society. But it's also really valuable then to say, you know, just other things. Like I I had a friend tell me the other day, like, you give me the best compliments. Like that was her response to me complimenting her. And I thought like, oh, that's, I didn't know that. That's really okay. Like that was, that made me feel really good. And so I think that we can get better as adults in doing this with each other even. Absolutely. I love that idea. That's so, that's fantastic. And it doesn't always go well, right? We sometimes mess up or say something and it comes out and we're like, oh, wish I wouldn't have said that. Any advice for a parent who, who might be thinking like, oh my gosh, I don't think I'm going to be able to say the right thing all the time. What would you tell that parent who's like, what should I do now? Or how should I think about some of the things that I have said? Yeah. I mean, none of us say all the right things all the time. Like I said, this is like the most humbling gig around. I mean, um, and, and, you know, for better or worse, we have our kids telling us all the time that we don't say the right things. I mean, sometimes I'm not even sure I'm like breathing correctly, but, you know, I think it's okay to revisit what I try to do. And this is as a parent, not as a clinician, but I'll just try to say, you know, when I said that earlier, like I, I didn't really mean that or what I really meant is this, or that kind of came out wrong. And, you know, maybe our kids believe us when we sort of try to bring, you know, roll something back maybe they don't, but I think of nothing else, if we try, then at least we teach them that people make mistakes. It's okay to acknowledge your mistake and then it's okay to try to make it right. And I think that that's a really valuable lesson to try to really encourage in our homes as well. Right. And sometimes we end up just, you know, really laughing about all of this. Like I just the other day, my daughter is at home for school and both my kids are, but she's taking to eating, eating ice cream for lunch. (laughs) And I think I was just in a mood myself. And I was like, ice cream again. (laughs) And I, then I was like, Oh God, no, that's like the worst thing you can do. You know, and we ended up just laughing about it. And I said, you know, honey, I don't care if you eat ice cream. I don't really care if you eat some ice cream for lunch. She doesn't eat a ton of it. It's, I buy it for her because she likes it. I said, you know, I just think you might feel better if you mix it up a little bit sometimes. (laughs) And, you know, we both ended up kind of cracking up because she was like, I know, I know. I've just been kind of like stressed out. Like school's hard. And then we have lunch at like 1030 in the schedule. And, you know, so. I think it ended up being kind of a productive conversation, but like that falls into the like kind of pile of some of the worst types of things you can say. And I will just admit, I just said it last week. So, so we all will do this. 
That's a fantastic story. It really, it really is. I think it does highlight that you're right. It's, it's kind of happened. And it does sound like you It ended up in this kind of lovely place of like, yes, of course it's stressful to have to eat lunch at 1030 in the morning. Who eats lunch at 1030 in the morning unless you're getting up at, you know, three or four or whatever. So I, I yeah. like how it came to a, a, a deeper, richer place that allowed some humor, which is great. And, and connecting yeah. her over what she was really stressed about. It does strikes me that the so much of the core of what you're saying is if we can connect with each other around who we really are and how we really are not what we really look like we'd be a little better off yeah definitely couldn't have said it better myself well i'm super excited for people to read your book and to be able to keep themselves in this so where can people find you find your book tell us that yeah, so there's a webpage for the book, which is just thebodyimagebookforgirls.com. And there are links from um, the webpage to ordering it. It's on Amazon, though. And there are links to information about me there as well. And there's a contact form and all of that. So I think I'm, I'm out there online now and trying to get this information to people. That's fabulous. And, and sneak peek timing on the book for boys. Any forecast on that? Yeah. Um, we're thinking spring 22, which felt so far away. And now that, you know, it's 2021, it's, it's like, you know, about a year. So I'm just really lucky to have a great publisher and production team that will spend a lot of time kind of getting a lot of the details right and the design and the everything ready to go. So it does take about a a year, sort of that whole process. And um, I get really antsy during that time because the bulk of my responsibility is done. And I'm just like, come on, you guys. I'm like a little kid. Let's do it. What are we waiting for? But I think that, you know, they know what they're doing and, um, and I'm grateful to them. That's great. Well, we have, we can, we can spend this year with the Body Image Book for Girls and look forward to the next, the next book that gives us something to look forward to. So we really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and sharing your research and your perspective with us. It's just been delightful to to think about uh, all of these topics. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun and um, I hope to stay in touch with you. Absolutely. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the Emily Program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily Program. Peace Meal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.